And so as we come to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, we come to this story of David, King David, where he took the census of Israel in the latter part of his life. So as we're picking up the text, the last few weeks we had David in his military conquest, and so that's when he was younger and in the strength of his youth, if you will. And then now all of a sudden the text just takes us forward to the latter part of his life and a failure, really, truly. Uh, he was fallen in this chapter, but not forsaken. As we look at the text tonight, we're going to talk about that. Fallen, but not forsaken. Because all sin and fall short of the glory of God, but the free gift of God is eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. So we are all fallen, but through Christ Jesus, we're not forsaken. And tonight we're going to be reminded of that as we look at this chapter. So we pick it up in verse 1, where it immediately tells us what's going on. Verse 1 of chapter 21, we read this. Now Satan stood up against Israel, the nation, and he moved David to number Israel. Take a census. So David said to Joab, his commander, and the leaders of the people, Go number Israel from Beersheba in the south to Dan in the north, and bring the number of them to me, that I may know that number, that I may know it. And Joab answered, May the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are, but my lord the king, are there not all my lord's servants? Why then does my Lord require this thing? Why should he be the cause of guilt in Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. Now, 2 Samuel tells us this was a 10-month journey. Verse 5. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to David. All Israel had 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and Judah had 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he did not count the Levites, the tribe of Levi, and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. So this request of David, it was unsettling to Joab, his right-hand man. You know, Joab's that mystery guy we've talked about quite a bit in Samuel and Chronicles. But time and time again, Joab's like rock solid on like calling it the way it is, like David, bad, bad idea. Because he was close to David, and he tried to stop David. And so even a couple weeks ago, someone asked me here in the sanctuary, what was so bad about David taking the census? And as we look at the passage, we realize pride. And if all the things are bad in the human experience, pride is really bad. Because we're told that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. We're told that Satan, who's in this chapter, before he fell and was cast out of heaven, he was really the created beauty and jewel of heaven, this super being of great beauty. And the prophets tell us of his fall in the Old Testament and that we see he went from beauty to ugliness, you know, and he, and he was cast out and we had the fall. And so here he is. He, he comes into to us. He's introduced us in the Genesis chapter 3 in the garden out of nowhere. So the fall had happened outside this dimension prior to that. And he's called the tempter. He's called the prince of the power of the air, the wicked one, the god of this age, little G. There's a lot of names for Satan. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's the adversary. I don't think we really have any idea truly how evil and powerful Satan is. But we are told he's taken the whole world captive to do his will before we come to Christ. Our head of the race, Adam, forfeited our dominion over this planet, promised in Genesis 1 and 2, in its fullest sense, when they sinned and submitted to Satan in the garden, Adam and Eve. And so death entered, they sinned, death entered, and thus death came to all. And there in the garden of Eden in 
Genesis 3.15, God promised that he would provide redemption for the fallen humanity. There are 3.15, that he would provide a redeemer to redeem humanity from the effects of sin and death caused by their being tempted and submitting to Satan there in the garden. We haven't seen his name, like Satan's name doesn't pop up a lot in the Old Testament. And here in Chronicles, we're just sailing along like a road trip, and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, Satan, like did not, did not want to see that, did not want to just, you know, I'm fine going through any book of the Bible without seeing the devil or Satan or Lucifer or any of those names for him. And yet it is a great reality that he's against us in trying to destroy our walks with the Lord, trying to destroy our marriages, trying to destroy our children, young or adult, our grandchildren, our society, our culture, the definition of right and wrong. He's, that's who he is. So here in this story, he is the tempter and he tempts David and David gives him the temptation. David's temptation is pride. Now, God did give census in the past where he'd say, take a census. But when God says, take a census, you take a census. And, you know, we talk about numbers are good to know. You want to know the numbers, especially with your personal finances and stuff like that. But I found in 35 years of ministry, when you try and number the work of the Lord, you're headed for trouble. I think church memberships, official church memberships and things like that, it can just cause trouble and mischief sometimes. It can lead to pride. I'm not opposed to church memberships as a whole because there are many wonderful pastors who have official church memberships. But men love and women love to find strength in power. And people are power and finances are power. And those are two great powers that can really trip us up and stumble us and make us have confidence in the Lord. If you have a lot of people, then you can have confidence in a lot of people, military might. If you have a lot of money, you can have confidence in a lot of money, economic might, and both can completely let you down in the human experience. David himself said, Son, men trust in chariots, but we will trust in the Lord our God. And it would seem in this story that his trust in his older age, as he had all that wealth and all that power and defeated all of his enemies, and he's got a trophy room second to none of all the, you know, the crowns they put on his head from people he conquered and all this stuff. He's got a vault full of treasuries, that he, the booty that he took from everywhere when he conquered everybody that's set aside for Solomon to build the temple in a later generation. And man, he could just be like, wow, I'm, I'm a bad dude, man. Like, he could have become a grumpy old man. He might have become a grumpy old man. We don't really know. But David is too much of a man for God's heart to become a grumpy old man. And God's not going to let it happen. So David took this census, and it was a cause of trouble. Now, we're told in 2 Samuel that God allowed him to do it. And that God actually was looking for a reason to judge Israel. But see, that's not for us. The things that reveal belong to us and to our children. The secret things belong to the Lord. And whatever God was doing where he was allowing David uh, to give in to that temptation, that's between David and the Lord and God and 70,000 people who died in this plague. And we're told in James, let no one ever say they're tempted by God. No one's tempted by God. We're all tempted when we're drawn away by our own lust and sinful nature. And we know that sinful nature shows up in three categories. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And with David, in 2 Samuel, we saw in his early sin with Bathsheba, he saw this beautiful woman bathing, and it was Buddy's wife. Lust of the eyes brought her in to him, had intimacy with her, lust of the flesh. You know, and God's like, dude, you could have anybody, but not your buddy's wife, you know? And uh, that was it. And he was confronted and the rest is history and all the turmoil and trouble he had for his adult kids for until the end of his life. 
he had challenges from that consequence. But here, it's pride. And it's interesting, I find as I get older, that when you're younger, you are prone to the lust of the eyes and lust of the flesh. But when you get older, you are prone toward pride. You see that. You can see that with elderly people. They get super prideful as they lose freedoms. They get defensive. And they want, and like, no one tells me I can't drive anymore. No one says I can't do this because it's hard to lose those freedoms. But we all know you start in diapers. And if you live long enough, you will end in diapers. If you don't think so, go to CVS and see all the diapers on the shelf for adults. And I said, yeah, it's the real deal. So we got to battle the all three elements of sin when we're younger, and we've got to battle all three elements of sin when we're older. And I don't think there's a great distinction, but if we get to heaven and we find out that God has more mercy on the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, I will not be surprised. Because in the Gospels, time and time again, Jesus has forgiven people like the adulterous women and harlots and all these people. He's shown great mercy and empathy, but those prideful Pharisees and Sadducees found no room for grace, nor did they seek it. And Lucifer's sin wasn't the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. Lucifer's sin was pride. I will be God. And you know, as little human beings step toward eternity and have built up wealth, sometimes they feel like they're God. And the last thing they can control is their wealth and tell people they're in the will, not in the will, control this, control that, and do stuff like that. I remember it was hard to get my dad to not drive anymore. He was 84. I begged him, please don't drive anymore. Let us just do this and help you out with this. My dad was very cooperative. He said, well, Joe, there was a day when, my, when I had to tell my dad he couldn't drive anymore. And I said, how did you know that he couldn't drive anymore? He goes, he was coming down the wrong side of the road with his windshield wipers on on a sunny day. In Florida, and even in Florida, that's unusual. That's not acceptable in even a sleepy town like, you know, Port Orange. So our context, the sin was pride. The devil's a tempter, David gave the temptation, but really it's about failure and renewal. It's about fallen but not forsaken. As we come to verse 7, we read on. And God was displeased with this thing, Therefore, he struck Israel. So David said to God, I have sinned greatly because I've done this thing. But now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I've done very foolishly. This is pretty awesome, right? Like, as soon as, you know, God was displeased. And so David's confronted with it. And let us all look at this, ladies and gentlemen, body of Christ, WG. I have sinned greatly. I have sinned greatly, and I have done very foolishly. Those of you that have raised kids that are adults now, we know it can be very hard getting your kids to admit to doing anything wrong or admit that they were foolish. And if we're honest with ourselves, the person we see in the mirror, we have a hard time admitting that we were wrong or that we were foolish, but sin and folly they go together. In fact, the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about those two being uh, yoked together, sin and folly. As we think about fallen, because David fell. He fell into sin, pride of life, and it's a big one. Instead of trusting the Lord, he trusted in chariots, and he something was happening there in independent living, or assisted living, or wherever it was David was, because this is the latter part of his life, and you know, just something like the, the adult kids couldn't reason with them. Joab, his best friend, couldn't reason with them, who managed the estate and the trust. You just couldn't reason with them. 
But give David credit because the man with a heart for God, as he showed that corrective element in his life and willing to receive reproof when he was younger, he received it when he was older. Because when he's confronted with sin, with Bathsheba, when he's confronted with it, he said, I've sinned. And he didn't blame Bathsheba for taking a bath half naked on the rooftop next to the palace. He didn't blame, you know, Joab or anyone else. The king next door in Moab, he said, I've sinned. And he accepted his punishment. In fact, we read of this in Psalm 51. And it gives us good insight to where David's at here. Because in this text, we're told he accepts full responsibility. He doesn't say, I've sinned, but, you know, the... Ammonites were getting bigger armies, and I needed to do a census. He didn't say, I have sinned, but, you know, all my wives are driving me crazy. I have sinned, you know, but the dog wouldn't stop howling across the hill over there in the Kidron Valley. Like, he didn't come up with a bunch of excuses. He just said, I have sinned, I have greatly sinned, and I have been foolish. I have been foolish. That's, I mean, for a guy that controls millions of dollars and has a lot of power and has won a lot more than he's lost and is in the Hall of Fame of Greatness... It takes a lot. It shows something special about his heart with the Lord, even in his folly, to confess that sin and own it. And we've been saying this a lot lately. One of the immediate marks of maturity, and I say this really for the young people as well as older people here tonight, the moment you accept responsibility for who you see in the mirror is the moment you go forward in life. The moment you don't, you don't have excuses no more excuses. The moment, you know, my wife Jennifer, it was about 10 years ago, maybe you know this, about 10 years ago, one time I said I was sorry, but. Uh, Jennifer, I'm sorry, but the dog. Jennifer, I'm sorry, but the construction crew down there, like, you know, and she just said to me, you know what, why don't you just say I'm sorry instead of I'm sorry, but. I'm like, oh, that's not that hard to do until I became cognizant of it. And then I realized every time I said I was sorry, I said I'm sorry, but. Jennifer's like, did you do that? I'm sorry, but, ah, ah. you know, like it's autopilot, like a rut. You just fall into a rut. It's easy to just go right into the rut because it's just the rut, right? I'm sorry, but, and it, it took discipline in my mind, seriously, for years to just learn to say I'm sorry, period, not but, and the continuation with adjectives and adverbs to explain away my wrongdoing. I got a ticket a, a while ago, and I was like, ah, I'm good with the cops. I love the blue. I pray for the blue. I go to blue commissionings, and I, you know, like, I'm all about the blue. I always cheer for the blue when it's a blue against the criminals. You know, like, I, I got blue. I got good blue juju. <laughs> this guy's going to let me off the hook for this. It's just a stupid thing. And he came up and he gave me the ticket. <laughs> and I thought of all the problems in our community. All the criminals in Orange County. And I thought, you know, I pay, I pay your salary. But I thought all these thoughts that you and I think, because you think it too. And people drive by, I'm like, don't look at me. I'm the guy that gets off the hook for the ticket because I support the blue. You just keep driving. Nothing to see here. Just keep going. And he gave me the ticket. I said, you know, well, it's nothing I don't deserve. That's what I said. I go, it's nothing I don't deserve. And thank you for your service. Because I always thank cops for their service. I see them in Starbucks, hey, thank you for your service. So, hey, officer, hey, thank you for your service. I'm like, thank you for your service. Yeah. Ah. For the next three hours, 
and I went to the dentist next. How's that for a one-two punch, right? So I met the dentist. I was going like, you know, there are so many criminals in Huntington Beach. Don't go there. Don't think that. He's doing his job. You do your job. And I worked through it. And by noon, I'm like, you know what? No matter what, this is on me. The fee, driving, school, it's all on me. That's on me. That's not him. He's doing his job. I show up in the pulpit to do mine. That's it. There's nothing more to say. Yeah. I, it's not something I didn't deserve. It's a fancy way of saying, like, I'm guilty. That's a, you know, it wasn't pleasant, but at least I was honest with myself. Uh, ah, you know. Well, I'm still going to back the blue, you know. And that's, it's, you know, it's like, it's not really about me, but, like, I think that's in all of us. Like, Jennifer's like, quit saying I'm sorry, but. And when the guy gives you the ticket, it's like, you, you did it. Like, why are you even, like, just drive away and go to the dentist? And he said, have a nice time with the dentist, too. That even meant, oh, have a nice time with the dentist. Hey, thank you for your service. You know, it was just, what are you going to do? It was a Monday. I mean, like, come on, man. Like, you're just like, oh, gosh, don't buy a lottery ticket today, man. That's a, yeah. It is one of those things. But confession is a good thing. And in Psalm 51, when David was confronted the first time, and he said, I've sinned, this is what he said in his prayer with the Lord. In Psalm 51, verse 3, he said, I have acknowledged my transgressions, and my sin is always before you. Body of Christ, yes, it is. And he said in verse 4, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. See, in that ticket situation, I thought, you know, this is the Lord. Because, you know, I've built up so much, you know, cause and effect of goodness toward law enforcement. Only the Lord would do this. This is the Lord. This is a man or a woman can receive nothing from the Lord. It's between me and the Lord. Like, this is the Lord. Like, hey, seriously, Blue, you know, thank you for your service. Because, and that's how it works. When we accept responsibility for our sins and don't say, yes, but, I've sinned, but, or, oh, man, but, you know, this, that... We're in such a good place to grow and go forward in the human experience, let alone being transformed for glory for the eternal experience. Who do you think runs eternity with King Jesus? People who walked in humility, who confessed and learned from their sins in the human experience. That's who. Who does not run things in eternity? People who are obstinate, hard-hearted, stubborn, prideful, and unrepentant. That's who. So this is all to our own good. When Jesus came into the world and is introduced to us in the Gospel of Mark, the first thing he says is repent for the kingdom of God's at hand. We need to repent. And repentance starts with acknowledging the wrong and confessing it before the Lord. Because as that happens, we're set up for good things. He would go on to say in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. So when we get that confession, it really is to our own self-interest because in the end, God cleanses us and he restores to us things that were lost. When we simply agree with the Lord that we have fallen. You know, everyone falls, but a righteous man will get up seven times, we're told in Proverbs. Remember what the Lord spoke to me when I finally surrendered to go into ministry in uh, November of 1987, failure is inevitable, growth is optional. So you're going to fail. The only question is, are you going to learn from failure and grow and go forward? And that's why I'm really glad I'm still alive at 62 because I got a lot of growing and a lot of going to get to before I step into eternity if the time has permitted me. And so do you.
1 John 1, 9, in, as the Apostle John was near the end of his life, he wrote that important phrase, if we, say that we, if we say that we don't sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. So we do have that sinful nature and we don't set out to do wrong, but it happens. We fall. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. See, we need the cleansing to go forward. Like a, a wound, like a physical wound, you have to cleanse a physical wound for it to heal properly. So we need to confess it and then we need to be cleansed from it so we can go forward. So confession is critical. And I don't know in your life where you're at with the Lord, but if there are things that he's pressing on your heart that you, he's saying, just confess this so we can go forward, it's going to be good for you and it's going to be good for the people you love and care about and who care about you. So as we think about fallen but not forsaken, we see how critical it is for confession as we see in David in verses 7 and 8. And just, oh, it's hard to say I've done foolishly, but... I have, and you have, and we all do. So praise the Lord that we have a great Savior to deliver us from our folly. Now we read on in verse 9. Then the Lord spoke to Gad, the prophet David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it for you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, choose for yourself either three years of famine or three months to be defeated by your foes with the sword of your enemies overtaking you, or else... Three days of the sword of the Lord, the plague in the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now consider what answer I should take back to him who sent me. David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of men. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it, and he was destroying the Lord looked and relented of the disaster and said to the angel, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Then David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, having in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. So David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell on their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who commanded the people to be numbered? I am the one who has sinned and done evil indeed. And But these sheep... What have they done? Let, let your hand, I pray, O Lord, my God, be against me and my father's house, but not against your people, that they should be plagued. What an incredible prayer from David. Man, what a scene here. It's like the superhero movies I talked about on Tuesday night where, you know, you have these aliens, you know, in the last 20 years, all kids all grew up with those, like, you know, Avengers and all that stuff where the aliens come through a portal and they're like, and they're huge aliens and they're super powerful. Listen, that's, that's the fantasy of men's minds. This is a real angel of the Lord. This chapter is very spiritual. We've got Satan, the tempter, and now we've got the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord with a sword stretched out over Jerusalem. And by the way, when Jesus comes back, yeah, he's described as coming as king of kings and lord of lords and with a sword, and he's coming to Jerusalem. That's something to think about right there. Ah, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city, the center of the universe is Jerusalem. David, who is so close with the Lord, who had survived so many things, is in sackcloth and ashes, and they're looking at this angel. Now, we don't, they're seeing it over the entire, I've been to Jerusalem. I've been to Jerusalem. And I've walked from the Mount of Olives through the Garden of Gethsemane over to, uh, around the city, inside where the east gates closed, where the, you know, the church closed that about four centuries ago to keep the Messiah from coming from the east. And I've been all there, the western wall, the Dome of the Rock. 
I took a bus to East Jerusalem where Golgotha is, a place of the skull, where, where Jesus is. Our tour went there. You can walk to all these places. They're all walkable. I mean, you can walk eight miles in Jerusalem and you see all of this stuff in one day, for sure. The temple and all that stuff. It's a valley, the Kidron Valley. And I just picture this angel, like, wow, like angel with the sword over it. Like, and it's really happening. Like, eternity's opened up and that dimension's open. And David, the great king who's conquered everybody, he's on his face. He's terrified, sackcloth and ashes, and all the elders with him. 70,000 men in three days. But if you look at the last 50 years, there's been a number of disasters in human history that have killed way more than 70,000 in one day. How about the tsunami in 2006? I mean, hundreds of thousands of people died in one day in like Thailand and all these other places like that. It was crazy. China, there was an earthquake in China around 20 years ago that killed like 250,000 people in one day. These things happen. Can you imagine like the calibration of grief going forward from this? From this. But equally so, just the terror of this event actually happening. And it's supernatural. It's not aliens like Independence Day or something with Will Smith. I mean, this is real, right? This isn't a joke. That's all just people like, let's go to a movie and scare people, you know? Like, or entertain their brains for two hours in a theater, right? This is real. And David is given three choices. Now, the choice he took made him vulnerable. See, if you're the king and you've got all the money and the wealth, you can protect yourself. See, all the really, really rich people on planet Earth don't worry about all that's going on. Because they have so much wealth, they're buffeted from it. Apart from sickness, which, you know, (laughs) that's a big one. But economic hardship doesn't really affect the people that are pushing buttons on planet Earth. They affect everyday people, but not them. That's like David. He can withstand a famine because he's got all the wealth. But he loves the people. He can withstand defeat at the hands of his enemies for three months, and he could handle that as well. It'd be embarrassing and humiliating, but, you know, like, his It'll run its course, and when it's said and done, he's still the king. He's got all the wealth. He conquered everybody else. You know, you win some, you lose some. But when he said, I'll take three days with the mercy of the Lord, of course, that's the wisest decision, one I think we would all choose. I'll take three days with the, with the angel of the Lord over those other options for sure. But in doing so, he made himself vulnerable to equal judgment upon himself and his house. See, when he made himself vulnerable to the plague of the angel, he made himself equal with all the common people. So what could have, it's just, it's a lottery. It's like the draft back in the 60s. You know, it's like, hey, your number comes up, it comes up. Hey, 70,000 are going down in three days. And you're in the hands of the Lord. There's no protecting yourself. There's no protection from this one with wealth or physical strength. David didn't have any of it. So we do see his heart for the Lord and for God's people, even though he said, these are your people. Like, in fact, how many people in the Middle Eastern culture would say, put judgment and curses on my family Instead of God's people. That's quite unusual and profound, wouldn't you agree? Like, most of us in our 60s are trying to figure out how to set our families up for a good future spiritually and physically and financially with the Lord. Wouldn't you agree? So why would we stop our progress in the Lord to say, Lord, just judge me for my folly. I'm like, when I've seen, when I've made mistakes and prayed God for mercy on my life, I'm praying, please let it be on me, not on my kids. David's amazing. This is the chastening of the Lord upon everybody. David's sin didn't affect him. It affected everybody. 
And in the book of Hebrews, we get some good insight of uh, chastening. So I'm going to read to you from Hebrews right here. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says this about chastening. Because really, we have confession, but we also have chastening. Or we might even say correction. Because really, correction is a softer landing and a, and, a, and, a, and a better word. Because whom the Lord loves, he chastens for correction. See, when you chasten your children, you want to see correction. Right? You're trying to, you're trying to steer their behavior. When your parents corrected you, it was for improved behavior for a better end result. So we could say it's chastening. We could say it's consequences of sin. But really... It's correction. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So he's trying to correct us. And he wants to correct David. And there's consequence. That's the real bummer with sin. There's consequences. There's consequences with relationships. There's consequences with business opportunities. There's consequences with finances and assets and all these things. There's even consequences with health. There can be many consequences for sin that are chastening. But you know, when you belong to the Lord, those things will work together for good to do a good work in our life if we let it. Now in Hebrews, it says this, and have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to his sons, Hebrews 12, 5, my son, and he's quoting Proverbs chapter 3, my son, do not despise the chasing the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. And we'll say daughters too. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons or children. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you were without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. In other words, if the Lord doesn't discipline you, you're not the Lord's when you have fallen. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For our earthly fathers, they did it indeed for a few days, chasing us, it seems best to them. But he, God, for our prophet, that we may be partakers of his holiness. See, that's the end game. 70,000 struck down or chasing in your personal life. The end game of chasing is that we may become partakers of his holiness. Now, no chasing seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So chasing from the Lord in our life is to train us. It's, it's to produce good fruit. It's, it's, it's to our own benefit, just like when you correct your children. We raise four children. And we, each kid's so different in their personalities. And, and they all needed corrective chastening for their behavior at different times. as little sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And, you know, sentences work for Luke. It made him focus. He just make him write 100 sentences. He's like, reel it in, Luke. Reel it in. Because he's like this. Timmy, you know, spankings. That didn't seem to do much. That seemed to... He didn't like the treadmill at all. <laughs> Once I figured out Timmy didn't like the treadmill, when he was like a young adult, I'm like, oh, we got something here. You hear him banging on the treadmill? Like, hey, one mile, 15 minutes. Now let's talk about it. Hannah was different, Leah was different, sentences, treadmill. Like, you know, you try and figure out, the, and the Lord knows what he needs to do to you and me to correct us from inappropriate behavior, to train us from it so we won't do it again. See, here's the thing about my ticket not long ago. The only thing worse than having to tell Jennifer I got a ticket would be to repeat the same thing. 
See, if I'm the same, the, the person that got the ticket and how I got the ticket, if I'm that same person today, then I'll be that person tomorrow. But if I learn the lesson of the chastening, traffic school, cost, time, energy, I'm like, you know, only an idiot gets his ticket and gets it again. So I have to have a benefit from this. I have to be better from this, and the cause of this ticket can never happen again while I'm driving from here to eternity. It's that simple. Because if I ever got a ticket for something like this again, then I'm just, you know, I'm just a donkey driving a car. It's just such folly, right? And of course you agree with me, but we do stuff like that with not driving cars, but with other things. Because the Bible tells us a dog returns to a vomit, so a fool do his folly. Yeah, we... We are chasing for corrective behavior to our own benefit that we can be trained by it and be the better for it. The peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What a wonderful text that is from Hebrews. So David was chastened. The people were chastened. It affected a lot of people. But it's to train us. It's proof that we belong to the Lord. It's to train us and whatnot. And as I said, I don't remember which kid it was. For some reason, I think it was Leah who hardly ever got disciplined. Um, they said, one of my kids said, well, who, 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 who spanks daddy? I'm like, God does. Well, how does that work? I'm like, oh, you know when it's happening. Wait till you're an adult. When you're an adult, you'll know when God's like, you know, you'll know. Oh, you'll know. If you serve the Lord, you'll know when he's spanking you. And you just take it like a man of God and don't get the same ticket. Just, you got you to gotta be better from it. So you have to change today driving so I'm not that, see, because if I do this, I'll just get the same thing tomorrow if I don't change today. So i got to change today so I don't get that tomorrow. And that's a benefit. Those who are trained by it through chasing and discipline. Verse 18, so we've seen confession and correction, which comes through chastening from the consequences. And now our third point is the cross. So we pick it up in verse 18, where we read this. Therefore, the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So David went up at the word of, the, word of Gad, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan turned and saw the angel, and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. But Ornan continued threshing wheat. So David came to Ornan, and Ornan looked and saw David. And he went out from the threshing floor and bowed before David his face to the ground. Then David said to Ornan, Hey, grant me the place of this threshing floor that I may build an altar to the Lord. He shall, you shall grant it to me at the full price that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. But Ornan said to David, take it, take it to yourself and let my Lord the king do what is good in his eyes. Look, I also give you the, uh, the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing implements for wood and the wheat for the grain offering. I, I give it all. And David said to Ornan, No, no. But I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take that which is yours for the Lord, nor will I offer burnt offerings which have cost me nothing. So David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the place. It's a lot of money. And David built an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And he that is Lord answered from heaven by fire on the altar burnt offering. Man, this is like Elijah, like a couple hundred years later. Like the fire came down. And so, verse 27, the Lord commanded the angel, and he returned his sword to his sheath. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord and the altar of burnt offering, which Moses had made in the wilderness, they were at that time in the high place in Gibeon. They weren't in Jerusalem. The ark was in Jerusalem, but they were in Gibeon. But David could not go before to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. And we might say rightfully so. 
That sword of the angel of the Lord would have been a terrifying sight to see. But when the king shows up, now that's his world. See, Ornan knows the king, and he falls down, and he pays homage to the king. It's just kind of funny. I guess you never know what you're going to get on that day of the Lord, right? See, Ornan knows the king, and he falls down, and he pays homage to the king. It's just kind of funny. I guess you never know what you're going to get on that day of the Lord, right? In a crisis moment, you just never know. You know, first responders would know you get variation. War, you get variations. But well, Ornan's just like, <laughs> I just love it. He just, he's just, he's just, he's doing, he, it's a compound effect. He's doing what he's doing every day, and he's not going to change. Even if the angel of the Lord's got a sword drawn over Jerusalem. If it's my time, it's my time. The boys are terrified. He sees David, dude, you're the king. Wow, I'll give it all to you. David's like, no, this is between me and the Lord. I got to buy it. You know, it's no cheap grace in this kingdom, in this universe. It's free grace, but it's not cheap grace. So he buys it, and he makes the altar, and the fire comes down from heaven, the fire comes out from heaven, and God accepts his offering. Then in the next chapter, I didn't read it, but David says, this is the house of the Lord, and this is the altar of the Lord, and that's exactly what it was. This is where Solomon built the temple. This altar David get built became the altar for the animal sacrifices for hundreds of years. So even in the chastening, God was moving towards something so much bigger than David's failure in this pride with his census. And here's an amazing thought. This is the exact same piece of planet Earth that Abraham, a thousand years before, came with his son Isaac, being tested by the Lord. A thousand years, that's a long time. A thousand years before this, Abraham was tested in his faith. He brought Isaac, the son of promise, there. He pulled out his knife at the same spot, and the Lord said, put it away. Now I know you've not withheld your son, your only son. I prepared an offering for myself. There's the ram in the thicket. Abraham's knife was drawn, the father for the son. God says, I've got this covered gave him the ram, the ram's a substitute, substitution, right? Then, now, here a thousand years later, the angel of the Lord has a sword out over the same area, and David prepares an altar, and God brings the fire down. So David has the bull, so we go from a ram to the oxen, and God brings the fire down to accept this offering. And David says, this is the house of the Lord. But there's more. Because this is Calvary and Golgotha. This is, it, this is within a mile, if not the actual literal place on planet Earth where Jesus Christ came a thousand years after David. And it wasn't the knife of Abraham. It wasn't the sword of the angel. It was the nails. It was the nails that put him on the cross. And it wasn't a ram or a bull or an oxen. It was Christ, the Son of God. It was God giving us his son at the same place a thousand years later. And that fire is acceptable for all of us for all eternity. There is no more Abraham, Isaac. There is no more David, the angel of the Lord, and the altar with the oxen. There is just us and Jesus and the day of the Lord. That's all there is. The cross has come. Christ has come. And I preached on the cross on that Holy Week when I did Romans Road on Tuesday night. But I'm going to go back to the cross tonight, to Romans chapter 5, and we'll wrap it up here tonight. Romans chapter 5 says this about the cross in Jesus. Because we've had confession, we've had sin and failure, we're fallen but not forsaken. We've had confession, we have correction through chasing and consequences, but in this final point, we have the cross. Because David at that altar with the fire is a type of Jesus, because that's where Jesus came 
to finish the job. Going back to Genesis 3.15 and the promise of redemption, Jesus came to this spot and closed the deal and finished the job. Romans 5 says it quite well in verse 6. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. What David sang about in Psalm 51, a thousand years before, we get every time someone gives their life to Christ, they receive the fullness of it. Those are all shadows. Abraham, Isaac, the angel of the Lord, David, the altar, the fire. It was all moving and giving us illustrations and understanding and upgrades, constant upgrades. The upgrade from the ram in the thicket to the upgrade to the oxen to the upgrade of the sun. And there are no more upgrades. Christ died once for all. There are no more offerings. It is, he is our sufficiency. And so our, we are fallen but not forsaken because we have that restoration through faith in Jesus. We can find that forgiveness through faith in Jesus. Personally, uh, any non-believer on planet earth can come to Christ and be, they can acknowledge their sinful nature. They can find, they can confess that sin and be right with God. They can receive Christ and find that forgiveness and they can go forward and the healing begins. And for the body of Christ, we, we have a fuller understanding because we're his children and he does chasten us for our, our, when we fall in our folly of our flesh and our eyes and our pride. But he forgives us and he wants to restore us. He doesn't want us to be left there in, defeated, in a defeated place because Christ is victory and it's a victorious place. And he wants to bring us to the cross. He wants us to come to the cross for confession to receive our chastening like a woman of God and a man of God and grow and learn and be, be the better for it and to find that healing and full reconciliation and restoration at the cross. For there's no joy like the joy of being forgiven and cleansed through faith in Jesus Christ. Man, his mercies are new every morning. It's a new day with Jesus every day. We can, just, we can put it behind us, the failures of the past. So far as east is from the west, so far has removed our transgressions from us. Isn't that beautiful? Body of Christ, worship generation, if you have things you need to confess with the Lord, I exhort you and I encourage you to do so to your own benefit. Accept the correction, accept the chastening, and accept the healing and get on and go forward. And don't blame Blue. Don't blame the dog. Don't blame the president. Don't blame anybody or anything. It's not about any of that. It's about the person you see in the mirror being transformed from glory to glory. Yes and amen.